Hello, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Impactful Conversations, a platform to educate and inspire. My name is Tafazwan Lovu, and thank you for tuning in to the show. On the show, I interview and speak to individuals who are making a difference in their world, individuals who have a different way of thinking and are forming as leaders in their respective fields. I do this on Instagram Live on my account, which you can give a follow at Tafanlovu, that's T-A-F-A-N-D-L-O-V-U, to catch the future episodes live. Anyway, wherever you're listening to this, I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everybody, um, or whatever time of day that you're listening to this, and a very warm welcome to episode 11. I'm very excited today to have Dr. Tinashe Chandaoka with me um, in the virtual room. Uh, he is a Rhodes Scholar, a doctor, of course, and a venture capitalist associate as well. Tinashe, thank you so much for, for joining on the show, and a very warm welcome to you. Yeah, Tafadzwa, where can I start? Um, it's really great to be on your show, to be engaging with you and your audience about like a lot of issues that I think are pretty pertinent uh, in a time like we're living in. And I, I also think, you know, just grounding our conversation in the fact that you came to visit me in Oxford not so long ago. So I really appreciate that too. Exactly. No, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So to kickstart us off, um, you know, we, we, we're going to start off fairly light and then we're going to dive right in. So to yeah. kickstart us off, I, I typically ask people, you know, um, typically ask guests on the show, just to help people get to know you a little bit. You know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, where are you from? Uh, what did you study? What do you do? And what are you passionate about as well? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, maybe maybe we can start with where, where am I from? And I think that's that's a very um, that's a very interesting question to ask. I, I'm one of those people who has many homes, and yeah. uh, you know, modern writers have started referring to this concept of where are you local to. Yeah. So I think I think I'll, I'll attack that question from looking at it like where is Tinashe local to, and I'd say that I'm a Joe Burger, right? Like you know, that's where my heart is. I think that's where I was as a teenager. And, you know, there was a pandemic and yeah, I was in Joburg. I could have been anywhere else in the world. I had been in, in, I'd been out in Canada. I'd been in the UK. And then when I could see that there was going to be a global lockdown, I went back to Johannesburg. So, you know, so, so I'm local to Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. But I think something else just to say is that, you know, Cape Town is a very special place to me. Uh, I think that's where I became like, you know, a a man. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm I'm local to Cape Town in Johannesburg. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So you know, tell us a little bit about your, your daily routine. Um, you know, what what's a typical day in in your life? Are you you know, are you a morning or evening person? How does sort of your, your typical type day go? Particularly I think now, um, in the in the pandemic, I think it's obviously a bit of a shake up for everyone. Um, but I'm quite interested to hear what's what's a typical day in your life? Yeah, so I think my day probably starts off at about 4.30 or 5 a.m. Um, yeah. I'll sit in my room and I'll think. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've, started to do, I've started to do meditation. Uh, a couple yeah. of years ago, I was just under like a lot of stress. And I, I, you know, I'm not good at meditation, like people who sit out of their bed uh, watch the sunrise, that sort of thing. But what I mean by that is like I actually contemplate, I run through the day 
mentally yeah. in bed and start thinking about, you know, what are things that I can do? What, how can I bring the best of myself to the day? And then I like clear my thoughts, just listen to myself and just see what space I'm at. And then uh, I'll try and fit in a run or some kind of physical activity, swimming or a cycle. And yeah, then I'll go to work. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the clock just runs. <laughs> there's never enough time. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's the end of the day. I know I have to, I know I have to be home and, you know, uh, joining my partner or friends for dinner. And then mm-hmm. after that, maybe a bit more work in the evening. And then, yeah, yeah. try and catch yeah. some sleep. Sleep is super important. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a, a very fast paced day. And I know, you know, something which I've probably experienced quite a bit is that, you know, the, with the sort of global pandemic, um, the days sort of just morph into one. So you're not really sure, you know, what's what's a Monday, what's a Thursday, what's a Friday. <laughs> um, yeah. Then other than the fact that, you know, on Saturday it's it's obviously typically a little bit slower. But as we know, you and I are here in an interview on a Saturday. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. I, I I wanted to ask you. So you know, I don't know. I'm actually not too sure if, if restaurants are open for sit down in the UK. But you know, once they are open, or if they are open, um, you know, what meal did you have if they are open? What was your first meal that you've had if you've gone there? Yeah. And if you haven't gone, um, you know, what meal are you gonna first have? You know, once you get back into a restaurant. So I'm going to caveat that by saying that my girlfriend is a very wonderful cook. I, I, I also cook, but it's nowhere yeah. near that. So I'm very lucky that during lockdown I've been spoiled. Yeah. Um, but we both love a restaurant called Zatars. Uh, it's just, it's close to our home. It's, it's run by a Palestinian family and, mm-hmm. you know, some really good Middle Eastern uh, street food, super yeah. healthy like decent prices you go there and you feel like you're a wealthy man and the food is just so awesome i'm surprised they don't have a michelin star yet or something like that but um <laughs> it's it's pretty popular in oxford uh and it's it's off one of the it's in a very diverse neighborhood so yeah. you know you've got quite a lot of like southeast asian east asian jamaican yeah. restaurants all in this and there's zatar's bakery and, yeah. and on that note i also want to say this having experienced two different kind of lockdowns yeah. South Africans on this one, you know, credit credit to President Sora Raposa and the others, but you know, really took COVID seriously. Um mm-hmm. I must say that like, you know, being on the British end of it, uh today's called Super Saturday. So the pubs are reopening, the okay. beaches are open, people mm-hmm. are free to have markets and events that are not planned. So in other yeah. words, you can just rock up with your boots and sell bread from the back. Yeah. And um I'm pretty concerned because I don't think coronavirus <laughs> has <Yeah>. got <laughs> no one wears masks here. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very sort of different um, you know, sort of cultural approach, I think. Yeah. And I, I must say I do commend the, the South African government at large, um, particularly the president, I think, for, for acting um really early, but also I think critically for me, I think acting on the advice of medical professionals. So you know, I think it's it's one thing to I think something that we find with world leaders around the world is the most dangerous position is when you think you know, right? When you think you know best, rather than when you're willing to accept that actually I need to listen to other people who know, you know, about this stuff better than I do. So yeah. I think we we're really fortunate to to have a leader who is is willing to listen and is willing to to have people around the table. Yeah. So you know, 
Are you are you a football fan by by any chance? Uh, and if so, what, what club what club do you support? I know it's been a big week in 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 the UK from a footballing perspective, but I can see yeah. from your face that it hasn't been a good week for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, well, my our arch nemesis. So to all you Manchester United fans, um, I am one of you. It's been a it's been a tough decade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, you know, like Liverpool wins sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes Stephen Gerrard is not playing on their team to ruin it at the end of the season, and and actually win a win a title. So you know, all credit, all credit to Liverpool. Um, um, some, some Liverpool fans that's a bit too soon. Like it's still it's still a bit. <laughs> no, I mean it's done now. I mean it's completely Look, done. Uh, all I can say is I think you know the most painful job in the world is is being an Arsenal fan. Um, and that's unfortunately something that I, I am, and I've learned a, a lot of resilience from that process. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's actually, I mean, I mean, we have something in common, right? So, yeah. When I look at Alex Ferguson, fantastic manager, but you know, there's a discussion to be had about succession planning in teams. Yeah. You know, yeah. whereas Alex Ferguson walked out, I think, with a championship under his belt and was like, "I'm now going." Yeah. Um, on the other hand, with Arsene Wenger, that period happened while you were still around. <laughs> I, I, I think that season was 2005. Yeah. <laughs> it took it took another what 13 years. <laughs> yeah. uh, cool. So so let's let's dive right in. So we we we're talking firstly um, about. This this journey of of becoming a South African, right? Yeah. Um, complex sort of thing. I think you know. For me, if somebody asks me, you know, where's home? Yeah. Um, physically, where I was born, like you, um, Zimbabwe, right? But home is a is a complex thing for me to answer. Um. Because home for me is most often where my loved ones are. So at the at the moment, home is two places, South Africa and Zimbabwe, right? And if and the UK actually, because I also have family in the UK, for example. So but I, I really want to dive into this this becoming a South African topic because I think the world at large is becoming, you know, despite the fact that we're not moving as much physically at the moment. But we're becoming a lot more global in our nature. I mean, you're sitting currently in the UK. I'm currently sitting in Johannesburg. Um, you're sitting in a small, lovely town of Oxford, uh, which is a, a dream of a town and, and a gorgeous town as well. Um, and, you know, we're talking as if we're in the same room because we are. We're in the same yeah. room, right? But, you know, talk to me firstly about your journey from Zimbabwe to South Africa, Right. And what I want to know is, you know, how easy was it for you um, to to leave Zimbabwe back then and to come to a South Africa, to a country like South Africa, and settle in South Africa back then? Wow. So South Africa was always something abstract to me when I was young. So you know, I was born in the late eighties when the like the end of the Cold War. You know, Zimbabwe was really, I think, at, at the peak of its post-civil struggle, like life. So the equivalent would be, you know, at this point, maybe talk about South Africa in the mid-2000s, 
from, yeah. from let's say a, a a black cultural perspective with mm-hmm. 10 years into a post-democratic society you know it's not unusual to have uh black professionals who are lawyers judges uh mm-hmm. you know, doctors you know succeeding in professions yes. and, and when i was born into my family at this point uh my parents were 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 well on a professional path and mm-hmm. so in zimbabwe almost like homogeneously black in terms of my own black cultural background um i would see on tv that there was another country called south africa where people were still struggling with these questions about like civil rights and equality mm-hmm. and every now and then i get these science textbooks about like you know with denominations in rand and talking about these towns with pictures like cape town that look like europe yeah. and it was an abstract concept until 2001 uh when you know my parents were very lucky to get a job uh in in Johannesburg uh, my my mom is a publisher she loves books she's also a teacher by background and mm-hmm. she had a phenomenal job uh to work for an international firm in Johannesburg mm-hmm. uh been running a, the Zimbabwean arm of another large uh international publishing house and then she moved to Johannesburg mm-hmm. um you know initially i stayed in Zimbabwe i wanted to go to a traditional catholic boys school anyone who comes from a Zimbabwean background will know like it's like a rite of passage Yeah, family that someone has to go to boarding school. It has to be a Catholic one run by priests. You have to have a hard time when you get out. Now you're one of us. Yeah. Um, but you know, because of the economic situation and things that were going on, I mean, I'll openly say that one night our school had all the cutlery stolen, you know, stuff like that. And you know, mm-hmm. the priests would make take every effort because the school was a prestigious one in Zimbabwe. to keep things working you know things like supply of bread eggs it was all an issue because of hyperinflation you know yeah. we just we just came to the conclusion that for the amount of resources we were expending and the kind of environment that i was in maybe it was better to go to to south africa and just be closer to family that had moved there mm-hmm. and so and so began this journey uh and i guess we'll touch on that maybe if we talk about like my my schooling background but the contrast between like a completely black school like in terms of the student body with the only people who are non black uh not even being the general teachers but being the priests yeah who are asian or 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 german or british like to being in south africa where it's like sometimes in some spaces as a young black person you are actually the minority yeah <laughs> spaces, it was a complete contrast yeah Yeah, and a massive shift. And so how how easy was it for you to to connect to South Africans um you know when you sort of came across initially. Um you know given that obviously you 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 were quite young I think you know, the conversation to be had about how difficult it is for adults to connect with each other. You know once you yeah. sort of get thrust into a new social system. Um but how easy was it for you um or not easy? as a as a child coming into the south african schooling system and into south africa at large to connect yeah, yeah. i i think that's a really good question i i i actually think it's been an ongoing process even now um i think i think i arrived in a very privileged environment in that by this juncture in my own parents life in terms of the kind of resources that they could deploy to my education I was able to move from let's say being at a state primary school in Zimbabwe 
having gone to a very traditional Catholic boarding schools, which are often subsidized by the Catholic Church, to, to then going to one of the premier independent schools in South Africa, yeah. um, you know, that you can see the narrative arc of my parents' life through the schools that I'm now able to go through, right, through mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, arriving at St. Stephen's, I... My, 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 my first experience of the place, right, was the general students. And when you're young, people, I think, are generally welcoming. So yes. the first bunch to welcome me among the day scholars were the, were the Zimbabwean students. So, you know, black and white. But yeah. immediately, and I've always wanted to do a play about this, is like, imagine you're a black Zimbabwean student in 2004. Mm-hmm. And you're meeting a, 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 a black so, I mean, a, 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 a white young student who also came from Zimbabwe, like the questions that are being asked. So, like, do you guys have a farm? How long have you had a farm? <laughs> those kind of things. And I mean, like, I mean, I mean, we might say that with a grin. Yeah. Those, that, were, those were difficult questions. Right. And and and, 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 and questions as well. Yeah. 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 And so, like, I found that I think like among like, let's say the 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 the, the Zimbabwean diaspora, there were some friendships. But the people who really welcomed me were the black boarding house students. And I think when we, when we talk about, um, when we look at what happens, let's say in South African independent schools, the, the truth is like a lot of the time people who are in boarding houses are, are there because they live far away from home yeah. or, you know, because of the legacy of South Africa, if they're yeah. black students, quite literally sometimes their parents, because of where they live, couldn't mm-hmm. live in the geographical areas of the school because of the Group Areas Act. Yeah. So you might find that a student on scholarship who lives in Soweto, Alexandria, uh, might actually have to like come to school, be in the boarding house, and then on weekends go home or at the end of the mm-hmm. term. So mm-hmm. for particularly the black South African students were so welcoming, man. Um, you know, I got introduced to, 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 to house music. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I was there, Soul Candy Session 1. <laughs> All yeah. that stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, like having people explain to me who Pitch Black Afro was. Yeah. Know? And at the yeah. same time, like, you know, uh, listening to, I, I think Dave Matthews went to St. Stephen's. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like having other guys explain that cultural dimension and being, yeah. watching the passion for rugby by both yeah. white and black South African students. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, chatting to a mixed race person who then explains to you the history of why maybe they don't support the Springboks and why they support the All Blacks. Yeah. So, yeah, it was fascinating. I, I think that's really fascinating, right? Because I think what I'm, what I'm hearing as, as you're talking is you, you had to sort of learn the culture, but you, you actually learned to listen um, to, to various different groups of people. Um, and you learn to sort of listen with an open mind to understand, you know, what what shifts, what what actually makes a culture tick, what what makes people like the things that they like, you know, what is it about Soul Candy, right? That's so cool, right? I yeah. remember when I got to high school, it was on Soul Candy Sessions Five. By then, it was it was like, okay, like what is this? Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That was the thing, right? And like going through that, that sort of step of learning, I think a, a culture. And its practices is something that's so valuable and so important because in a way that you go across the world, um, yeah. you know, having to sort of go into that step of actually let me understand, you know, about these people, what they actually do, 
what makes them love the things that they love yeah. and what makes them, you know, not love some of these things. So, you know, yeah. what makes them not passionate about the spring box, you know, it becomes a complex conversation. And I think that's a really important um, trait that you, that you did pick up. So I, I want to, you know, touch on a little bit about, you know, your journey through St. Stilians. And one of the questions was um, from the floor before we, we did yeah. the episode, yeah. opened up Q&A, um, you know, you went to boarding school, so you were actually a boarder in, in Saints. You know, yeah. what was the impact of being in boarding school um, for you? And uh, particularly, you know, of course, you, you're into a new culture, but you're now also in, in a boarding house, right? Yeah. Um, what was the impact of that? And, you know, how, how did you go from being the foreign student, right, who came in with knowing no one, right, absolutely not knowing anybody there, not understanding a single clue about South African culture other than the posters of Cape Town and, you know, the things that look like Europe and those things, right? And the things that you saw on TV and the things that you saw in the textbooks. How did you go from that to actually being, you know, the leader of the school um, in, in, you know, at the end of your matric or in your matric year? How was that sort of shift? You know, take, take us along a little bit on that journey. Yeah, I, th- I think others are probably better placed to comment on this because, you know, when you're living through it, you often just don't see the events. Yeah. And again, I come back to this thing of song and culture. Um, a big part of boarding house life um, was song and culture. We had Afrikaans young students. We had uh, black students who came from townships. We had foreign students from Japan. But you mm-hmm. know what? At the end of every day, right, we'd have this thing, uh, raw core. Right. Yeah. Everyone in the boarding house comes in and we sit and, you know, everyone is counted. But then we would do like we'd even do a cultural play every night. Each grade was in charge of doing a five minute skit, stuff like that. And that's culture just brought us all together. And yeah. we had this intel's competition and we wanted to be number one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would practice for all the events like the inter house play. Mm-hmm. And then we think about what play are we going to do? And then we the one year, I think we did a play, an anti-apartheid play. Yeah. And everyone in the boarding house learned anti-apartheid songs. Yeah. So, you know, like, what that meant was that, like, even if we were at a sports event, it meant that, like, we had one song we could all sing. In fact, we ended up having, like, 30 songs we could all sing together. And, yeah. and because we're actually as boarding students at the school all the time, and I was in Colin's house and the other boarding house, Mount Stevens, we're at dinner, we're chatting with these guys. They also know the songs we can sing because we'd sing them outside their house to annoy them. And they and we would know their songs because vice versa. But yeah. what ends up happening is you end up having having this group of really passionate people who, because they live at the school and actually know how everything is run, including the secrets, um, they become custodians of, of the school. And so... My role in the boarding house was even down to say, like, I would look down out of my window and the grass was dying. You'd, I would lobby for the grass to get watered. I would water it myself for months yeah. sometimes. So it's like you end up having ownership of the boarding house. The tuck shop was failing. I got involved in that. And we turned it around. Nowadays, they call that private equity. <laughs> Back then, <laughs> it was doing good. <laughs> you know, I discovered that the margins you can get on hot chocolate. Are like yeah. um, but, you know, we drove all the profits back into, like, fixing the TV room so that we could watch better rugby on better couches and pool tables. 
so so you know you end up because you run the boarding house and the boarding house is at the center of the school because whether you're on an academic scholarship rugby scholarship cricket scholarship half of those teams those guys are in the boarding house yeah so, so you know the traditions that people pass on to each other give you the leadership schools the background history of the school to basically understand how to run it it's like being in the the school's leadership institutes 24/7 yeah. except you're being taught by your best friends yes yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's a really yeah. that's really really profound and you know what advice would you have for a, a foreign school child um you know who firstly let's let's break that into two someone who is one considering coming to south africa um yeah. you know obviously you know once once all of the sort of the coronavirus dies down and everything and and we start to reopen the borders and everything like that yeah what would you, what would you advise somebody like that and secondly um what would you advise somebody who is at you know in in south africa as a foreign school child yeah. you know based on the learnings that you've had um what what sort of two or three things would you advise them i think so so i also want to say that i i'm not perfect and i haven't figured this out mm-hmm. but i think the the most important thing you know i i've been someone who's gone to different countries as well yeah be yourself like don't lie like like you know if if you just don't like some things don't participate and also don't necessarily fake values that you maybe don't have mm-hmm. so that's the first thing is like be yourself and i think people love people who are genuine honest and share the best of themselves right the second mm-hmm. thing i'd say is learn learn a language try and learn a language a south african language mm-hmm. and, and i think particularly if you're short of time i think there's merits in learning a, a in a black south african language because once you learn people's language you understand so much of the culture yeah. and if you don't have the time to learn the culture so i mean the the, the a language particularly please make the time but also mm-hmm. like immerse yourself completely if casper nyovest is going to fill up the dome go yeah. <laughs> if if there's going to be a play at the johannesburg theater about siswe banzi is dead and john carney is going to come back to do it go yeah. if there's an opportunity to to help out in community service uh in in an area go there if mm. if you have a chance to like have south african friends who invite you to like a barbecue or say a braai look at me uh or, or stuff like that like and and by the way like i know that i'm at risk of of saying that i'm like talking about south african stereotype experiences mm-hmm. but i could give others but some of them are laced with like pain and emotion in the sense that like what what's the current issue in south africa right now it's gender based violence right yeah what's being done around that if you're at uct and people are protesting about an issue that affects gender based violence i think it's something that's important to understand like go to the talks go to and speak to the activists yeah. understand why gender based violence is a big issue in south africa and and as they explain that to you you end up having a framework of understanding mm-hmm. uh the role of like let's say the, the 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 difficult journey that women have had in south africa yeah and with that men and then there's yeah. the issue of race that then comes up so you yeah. actually end up learning about the place so yeah. number 1 i guess be yourself number 2 is learn a language or mm. or, or immerse yourself in culture 
And I think the third thing finally is, I think knowing that you have a place as a human being on this planet, doesn't matter where you are, you add value and there'll Mm. always be noise. But like, if you believe that you have value, I think you'll have the confidence to survive a lot of difficult things that come your way based on your race, gender, nationality. That's really and that, that's all I can I, I I can I can speak about on this topic. Yeah, and that's that's really powerful and, and really profound. And thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's 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 talk a little bit about your transition to UCT. Um, you know, so you went to study medicine at the University of Cape Town. Um, you know, how is this as a culture shift from a South African private school? Um, any different or, you know, did you sort of have to learn and unlearn a lot of stuff um, in that sort of shift from from school into university? It was huge. I wouldn't say. And here's the kicker. And we I, I felt I felt that I've had to unlearn things more by yeah. leaving South Africa. OK, but at UCT. I became far more conscious. So again, it's like culturally, I grew up in Zim for a certain portion of my life, mainly yeah. black country, where a lot of the people in positions of power are actually black. Look, yeah. speak, may think like people in your community. Whereas at, when I was at, at St. Stephen's College, I had teachers who were non-black for the first time, right? And positions of authority were occupied mainly by people from cultural groups that were not the same as me. So it was like learning how to navigate that environment. Then you have the University of Cape Town, which as a publicly funded university, you know, forged during the end of the uh, English colonial period going into apartheid, Mm. was largely a white institution, right? So like the culture of the institution is one that is quite European, Anglo-centric, even more so than in some ways, like let's say Sensitians, except that like it's it's how can I put it? It's it's sort of it's not, but it really is. <laughs> um, and then and then because it's a publicly funded institution, mm. now you're really seeing all walks of South African life on campus. Yeah. And and the and the most stark thing for me was j- the week after O week. Yeah. But now classes are starting, right? And mm-hmm. UCT had this thing where we do a computer literacy test. I don't know whether others on your show or yourself had to do this, but they, they, they want to check whether your computer skills are at a standard that can enable you maybe to, to start doing um, the program. Yeah. I did this computer test, and I think I was done with it in like 15 minutes. Mm. And I remember looking across me, and I saw like someone next to me was was still quite far like from finishing this test. And I was like, Okay, this this is interesting. So I walked out and during O week, so I mean during this week I discovered that if you failed that test, you had to redo the test. And if you didn't pass that test, you had to go on what was called like an intervention program. Where instead of like let's say doing a three or four year sorry, a three year degree, you might have to do a four year degree because they're gonna give you a year of catch up materials. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the racial and cultural makeup groups of the mainstream course versus the, the intervention programs is very mm. different, right? And yeah. you end up seeing that, like, inequalities in society are, are being, like, magnified by these things. Mm. As the term went by, 
let's say I had time because I maybe finished my assignment. Because the truth is, like going to an independent school in South Africa, you were maybe doing like, let's say, music, uh, sport <laughs> and something else. And like there are all these skills that are being put in the curriculum in terms of, let's say, computer literacy, uh, mm. planning projects, referencing that you aren't learning at university. And, yeah. and, 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 and I'm not saying that these cultural and economic differences weren't there in the independent schools, but it's quite different when you're playing a catch-up game at age 14 yeah. versus now doing it at 19 with even less resources and, yeah. and tutoring available. Mm. So now, the, the thing that really struck me was like, you've been to like, let's say a party and you can see that some people in your class are missing. Yeah. You go back to the tutorial, let's say, so, so we had this big chemistry tut on a Thursday, so on a Friday morning, and yeah. you would know that a student's Thursday night is the big night. Yes. And you know, you saw some faces at some of these clubs uh, on the Thursday, because, you know, I didn't partake in these things. But then, <laughs> but then on Friday morning, you know, yeah. you see the eyes that are tired, but people are finishing the chemistry tutorials. And then you see other people are struggling, but these guys were in the library the whole night, right? Working, yeah, getting up on computer skills so that they could then do the task. Yes. And, and they're struggling. And you start to see that it's a six-year program, like let's say in the case of medicine, or maybe in total also like nearly six years in architecture. Yeah. You, you can see that by the time you end up at the degree, it's like survivor. If you survive... The entire period, you gain the skills, but you're, we're not starting in the same place here. You're not. It's it's just not fair. Yeah, yeah, and that's something we absolutely have to address. Is, yeah. is that? And I, I'm I'm interested to know. So you know, something that we we typically see um, with with South African private school kids um, coming from, you know, their school where they have, you know, gained their sort of network and their sort of, you know, group of friends. And typically people migrate in groups, right? So like 30 of us will go to this school, 20 of us will go, sorry, to this university, you know, 30 of us will go to Stellenbosch, you know, 10 of us will go to this other one, you know, yeah. 25 of us will go to Vitz. And we typically see, um, at least, I'm not sure what it was like, you know, when you were at university, but at least when I was at university at UCT in particular, that people have their cliques and they, they very much don't venture out of those cliques, um, you know, as they sort of transition into university. People end up having the same friends that they had back in trick um, and don't necessarily venture too much out of that circle and, you know, gravitate to people who are like themselves, who have the same issues as themselves. I'm interested to know what was your transition like, um, you know, coming from a South African private school, going into uh, an environment like UCT, um, you know, Africa's best university, um, studying an absolutely amazing degree. But from a social perspective, um, what was that transition like? Yeah, it was very stark. So, so I'll be quite honest with you. So I, I actually didn't keep a lot of my friends from school. Mm -hmm. I didn't, like, even though I was head prefect, I, I think I got along with a lot of people. And, you know, I spent a lot of time actually, like, 
working on the people in younger grades. So like the grade eights, the nines, the tens, looking after them. And yeah. the people in my boarding house were my friends. Yeah. And and a lot of those friends of mine in the boarding house didn't necessarily come to university or come to UCT. Mm. When I was at UCT, I made a lot of friends like de novo at UCT just started off. Um and so I actually found that it was like a natural watershed moment where I actually didn't could actually step away from yeah. maybe like a, a lot of the, the friends that I'd made before. And it also was yeah, it was it was really great in the sense that mm. it was kind of like a chance to like restart again. Yeah. But that said, like the stuff that you described, um I, I really benefited from that in the sense that there was a, a guy at my school who had also done debating. Mm. Uh, and he was like two years ahead of me. And mm. I would chat to him and I'll be like, you know, how can I get better at debating? And he would tell me. He would take me to the tournaments. Mm. I would catch up with him. When he went to UCT, I said, what res are you in? And he told me, smart, it's the best <laughs> one. And then I came to visit him with my mom. And he walked us around campus. He even yeah. took me into the library. He even showed me Vula. He opened Vula and he said, this is how you check your marks. This is how you do this. So like, I'm still in matric, but mm. I now knew that there's a thing called Vula. I knew yeah. the point system. I also knew that there was an entity called Smarts Hall and mm. that it was closer to all the lecture rooms than the others. I didn't even know the other things that, that would go on. So yeah. when I came time for me to apply to say like, I want to go to a res or something, I said Smarts Hall. Then when mm. I arrived, I saw like the historical differences in all these reses. And yeah, so, so it definitely benefited me from that perspective. But I think it's what's really awesome for me was that I, 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 had, I had a really diverse group of friends now in varsity from mm. different backgrounds, different provinces. Like I was the only Joe Burger. There were only like, okay, there were two or three of us. Yeah. All the friends that I made in Smarts, yeah. I still chat with them. We lived in a digs together for five years, right? Yeah. Best man at someone's wedding. But yeah, that, that was, was the first time, I th not the first time, but I think I, my, my identity as a South African was forged there. Cause yeah. I could see through medicine, like the real poverty, the, 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 the difficult history we have, mm. you know, all the sharp ends, gangsterism, mm. drugs, um, at UCT, this thing about like racist institutional practices. How do people pass exams when they also have to like protest for their survival? And, and, and I guess, you know, I, I don't want to labor this point, but when I was at Sensitivians, it wasn't just my parents who were paying my school fees. You know, mm -hmm. it was also like my sisters who contributed. And my final year, I was very lucky to have a scholarship that paid half my fees because I was head boy. But coming mm. to UCT, um, a number of events like hit our family where uh, my I no longer had the ability to pay fees. And that year really transformed me because I nearly got kicked out of UCT. Mm. That's when you see, like, at that point, I was not a South African citizen. Yeah. I couldn't apply for any South African scholarships. Mm. I, I tried, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> I called here to there and you know, like my marks were fine. They were good, but I could not raise the money. And that's when I saw all these things that people read about in the newspaper that like universities, like the university of Cape town, 
have problems with, with, with assisting students from difficult financial backgrounds to stay. I, I experienced it because guess what? I got that letter which says that you're on your way out, buddy. We can't help. Yeah. I even went to the deputy dean of the faculty of health sciences. I asked for them to release my results so that I could get access to a student loan. But mm-hmm. my mom couldn't be a surer. UCT said no. They wouldn't mm-hmm. release my results. The only reason why I finished my degree at UCT and is actually because a, I had to write a letter. I had given up. I had literally given up. I wrote a letter to the headmaster of my old high school, Stevens, and I said, sir, this is what's happened. I'm going to leave UCT in my fourth year of my medical degree. My marks yeah. are fine. Here they are. Do you know any parent, anyone who's willing to help me <laughs> to just try and get just just like this year to pay back the money that I owe so that I can try and finish my medical degree? Mm. That mm. afternoon, I don't know what he did. He must have called some people and he said he basically told me, don't worry, it's solved. So you, you said you, you called your old headmaster and, you know, that that sort of got got you you know, the, the funding that you needed at the time. But yeah, so what, what was that process like? I mean, there must be more to that story. I'm quite curious to hear more about it. Yeah. So actually I, I called my old headmaster and we started chatting about different options. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, he encouraged me to, to basically consider an option around student loans. Now the problem around what, that was I didn't have a surer, right? Because like my mom was not in a financial position to do that. And mm-hmm. so Guess who ended up being my 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 surer on my student loan that enabled me to finish? Who was it? My grade ten English teacher, Miss Wendy Robb. And a, a shout out to her. Like she she actually interviewed me before I like when I arrived uh, for my grade. Well, I was grade six at the time. Yeah. For my for grade eight. That's a small yeah. world. Wow. Yeah. No, it, it's crazy. No, she she. I can't put it into words. I, I owe her a lot. I would not have finished at UCT if, you know, it's a big thing to be the surer on someone else's debt. Yeah. And yeah, and she took that on for me. It's the only way I could, I could be able to get finance. So, so this is what I mean by like, in a sense, like the social capital and the networks that these places can afford is that if, if, if it wasn't for that, right, it was just going to be another story of young black scholar excluded from UCT because of finances. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. and through the passion and dedication that like teachers maybe have, whether it's public school systems or independent school systems, if mm-hmm. it wasn't for that like if it wasn't for the passion and dedication that teachers have in our high schools, I wouldn't have made it through UCT. And I won't lie, I mean like that's why I struggle so much with UCT in the sense that like <laughs> you're in your fourth year you're passing yeah. and everything is fine. Yeah. But you're not even asking for money. They won't even yeah. release your results. Yeah. 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 And and I think that that really outlines some of the the social and financial disparities that exist. Um which I think we we as a generation need to absolutely put it on a high priority that this be solved, that we don't go through um, the same experiences, that our kids don't go through the exact same experiences, and that we take care of each other. 
as as people as you rightly pointed out earlier that you know you as a human being have a place on this earth yeah um and that that is absolutely important i, I want to ask you why why medicine right so so yeah. why what made you choose to to study medicine what what sort of divert what sort of led you into that direction yeah i think i just wanted to make a difference and i think i'll say this clearly is that medicine was a profession i could see myself doing for the rest of my life it's that simple and mm -hmm. and Papa, we haven't chatted about this but you know i studied architecture at uct for my first year and then mm -hmm. i made the switch to medicine mm -hmm. um through the experiences of being in the architecture classroom, I actually discovered that like while I was doing okay at it, it, it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue for the rest of my life. And I went to Johannesburg General Hospital and I started helping out in the clinics and I actually realized that medicine combined science, a passion for taking care of people and, mm -hmm. and, and, and all these things that I think I'm naturally good at doing. So. It, it was yeah. clear to me that medicine was the thing to do. Mm, mm, mm. That's really powerful. So let's let's talk about one of the the major influences in your life. Um, yeah. You know, while you're studying medicine at UCT, and and you wanted to to touch on a little bit about you know Prof Bongani Mayosi. Um, yeah. Who, as I understand it, you know, was a major influence in your life and positively impacted your life. Um, and, you know, still today has imparted lessons um, on your life that are still today relevant and are still today helping you in your everyday life. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, that sort of relationship that you had with him and what impact he had on shaping your experience at UCT. Yeah. So... Um, Bongani Mayosi, where does one start? Bongani Mayosi was a living legend. Uh, <laughs> the thing, the thing about Bongani was, you know, he was a, he was a short man. I think about like maybe five foot four, three, mm. but you'd see this man full of so much energy. And he, and you know, he had a, he had a little afro because he didn't believe in, uh, using chemical products or anything to like hurt black hair. Because he yeah. said, you know, natural black hair needs to grow a certain way. And if mm. you do anything to it, um, it's it's going to, like, damage your hair follicles. Yeah. I like to think that he was actually, you know, like a, an Africanist deeply <laughs> at heart, <laughs> wearing a fro in a medical hospital. But the thing yeah. was, Wongani mm. had this smile and boundless energy. He gave us a lecture about heart disease. And I remember watching this guy and I said, for the first time in medical school, I see someone who looks, sounds like me, came from a similar background, who I now think I can succeed in this place. You know, UCT had some experiences where sometimes you'd be in a tutorial and like a lecturer would sometimes say something like, you're lucky, uh, certain students are quite lucky to be here because of the regulations that are now in place. So especially to you guys, I think you guys should study hard and prepare for these tutorials. Like, in what world do you say things like that? You know, it's pretty loaded. Um, so, so someone like Wongani would, would just, you know, what he was looking for was enthusiasm in students and, mm. and just like a love for science. So I remember writing to him and I still have the email, uh, in my, in my second year, I wrote to him and I said, Prof. Mayosi loved your lecture on cardiology 
um, you know, is, are there any research projects I can help you with? Even if I'm just like a minion, just like collecting data for something. Mm-hmm. And immediately he wrote back. Um, I subsequently worked with another professor who was the head of surgery, a lot more on research. But it would be the kind of thing where like, and you know, both of these were, were, were professors who were persons of color. Mm. You know, Professor Khan was the head of surgery and he would see Bongani walking on the corridor and he would op- open the door and say, ah, Bongani, come and see this one, come and see. And, you know, we'd all chat and say, uh, and then Prof. Mayosing would be like, it's not too late to steal you. <laughs> and, you know, things like that where, where I could chat with him about research opportunities, about applying for different scholarships to, to go to different places. When you have these conversations with people like Professor Delavere Khan or with Bongani Mayosi, it wasn't an abstract thing, right? They were like, like in the case of Bongani, he had been to Oxford. You know, he mm-hmm. had fought to get a scholarship to be here. And, to, you know, he made a name for himself in Oxford. He was, him and his wife are just the kindest, brightest people. Mm-hmm. And these things for him were like obvious outcomes in a person's life. They weren't like maybes. They were like, okay, if you do this and this, and obviously you're going to work hard, it can happen. And And that's, and, and I just want to add that, like, my last conversation with Bongani was perhaps the most profound and one that really sticks with me. Mm. You know, he, I, I was back at UCT during my, my PhD. Um, I think I bumped into him at the airport randomly. And then he said, you know, like, reach out or something. Mm. And then I went to his office and he looked a little bit distant at the beginning. And then we started talking and I said to him, Prof, you might have noticed that I've been avoiding you for some months. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to tell you that I don't know whether I'm going to come back to specialize in medicine anymore. That's like telling, that's like telling <laughs> a family member that like maybe you want to change your surname. <laughs> You're done with this family. And you know, and then he said, uh, what do you mean? And then I said, you know, I want to, I want to actually, my, my, I've discovered that my dream is to actually build hospitals. And I want to build a lot of hospitals across Africa because my research shows me that what's missing for our people is having safe places to get healthcare. Mm. And Bongani then said to me, it's okay. And I was surprised because normally Bongani would have been like, no, 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 no. And then he says, don't you just want to come and do community service? Just one year. Mm. Yeah. And I said to him, but I, I, I genuinely feel like this is my part. And he said, okay, let me know how I can help you. And then we had like an hour long conversation. By the way, I now feel bad because we've, you know, our meeting started from five until like seven at night. And Wongani has a million things to do. So he obviously gave me a lot of time. Yeah. But at the end of our conversation, he had explained what I should do and everything. And then I said to him, but prof, you're going to help me, right? And he had this look on his face of like, almost like surprise of like, why would someone ask? Like, you know, like, like in my head, I just thought like, you know, it's the kind thing to say like, prof, thank you. And, you know, I know it's going to work because you're going to help me. Mm. And he turned to me and he said, yes, I'll, I'll help you. And like, Literally six days later was when it happened, when, when he passed away. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And, and such a tragic, such a tragic thing. Um, 
to have happened to to one of the great giants um, that this country has ever produced. Um, and I know that people, you know, describe him as as a as a small man, but he's a giant. Um, yeah. And and a giant soul and a giant heart as well. How did he, you know, positively influence your dream of of going in going to Oxford? Um, so we we're sort of transitioning now into sort of the next step of of the journey of your life. Yeah. Um, how did he sort of play a part in that? And you know, when did you start to dream about Oxford one? And yeah. when did you also start to dream about becoming a Rhodes Scholar? Um, and how was that sort of process from the inception of the dream to the reality as well? So you know, Bongani. Wongani had this ability to basically empower a tremendous network of people. So mm. there were several other uh, black academics, younger academics, yeah. who had a direct impact on telling me about, like, let's say, what the Rhodes Scholarship was about. Mm. Um, when it came time to, once I had applied, would practice interviews with me, people would push me and say, but like you said, you were going to do this thing. Do it. You know, yeah. yeah. And in hindsight, like whether it was Vuyani Mklomi, whether it was Ntobeko Ntusi, who is now the head of the Department of Medicine at, at UCT, mm. and Wongani himself, these are all people who went to Oxford. Do you see what I mean? In the sense that, like, he he created a network of young black academics, and 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 even beyond like black academics, he empowered students around the world to and Africa in specific to to aim for their highest dreams and and to realize that these were places and disciplines that they could do. Mm. Um, so yeah, Bongani would visit Rhodes' house. He would, I'd bump into him at airports, I'd ride to him and ask him for advice about projects and stuff with with navigating things. He, he was a phenomenal person. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, as we sort of start to, to, to look at the, you know, becoming a Rhodes Scholar, um, what what convinced you that it was possible? So, you know, it's it's quite quite a, a few group of people, right, who have that privilege of of doing that and of becoming a Rhodes Scholar and of of being in that in that environment of Oxford in general. Um, yeah. But Rhodes Scholarship as yeah. well. You know, what what was it that convinced you that it's possible? And you know, what was that like, that sort of journey in terms of, you know, becoming one? Um, would you say, you know, that it was a one-step dream? You know, was it just, you know, okay, cool, I know I can do this. Let's let's apply. Like, let's do yeah. it. Let's go. I, I believe in myself to shoot for the stars. Like, was it just a one-step or was it sort of a gradual becoming, as it were? You know, was it a gradual, you know, you reaching to your highest self as well um, throughout that process? I think it was probably more of, I think it was probably a mix. So, yeah. you know, looking back, when I was 13, I came to the UK to visit my sister. Uh, my older sister had come to the UK. Well, she went, she went to Canada on a Rotary scholarship, and that's another story on itself. Imagine yeah. coming from like Zim and getting a scholarship to go to Canada. Yeah. And through that, she got other scholarships and, and people who, 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 I mean, she empowered herself 
But mm. she she had this network that she was building and that allowed her to come and study at the University of Birmingham. Mm. And then in her final year, she was able to spend time in Oxford at the Oxford and Oxford Brooks. Uh, I think it's a it's a it's a le- it's a law school practice yeah. that they run. So she yeah. was in Oxford during that time. So I came to England. Being 13, all I cared about was fish and chips and playing Age of Empires on <laughs> on a desktop. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but she was actually like what they call like a, a junior warden or sub warden in, yeah. um, in, 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 in one of these, uh, schools, uh, that are actually quite close to Oxford University. Mm-hmm. So we, she actually walked us into town and she, she showed us Oxford. And so mm-hmm. even as a, as a 13 year old, I said, Oh, this is a nice place. My sister's here. So I yeah. can come here. I, know. I, I forgot that. This happens through time. But when I was 24, my final year of medicine, I had a chance breakfast with one of the old headmasters at St. Stephen's. His name is Ian McLaughlin. I don't know whether you've ever met him. Yeah. No, I've heard about him. Yeah. So, so, so I was having a, a catch up breakfast with Ian and I told him what had happened in my life, you know, including like nearly being excluded at UCT. And then he said to me, young man, like, why didn't you tell me what was going on? And I said, like, well, I'm sorry, it's, it's sorted now. And he says to me, you know what, like, mm-hmm. you need, like, I've always told you that you need to apply yourself to try and push to try and change South Africa. And there's a couple of opportunities that can enable you to do that. And the Rhodes is one of them. And I said, no, like I, I'm not a Rhodes scholar. It's, it's not <laughs> me. And he said, no, 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 you're going to apply. Like I know, I know the application criteria. You will apply. And then <laughs> he said, I will be your, your referee. So nice. on, I think like January the 2nd, 2014, <laughs> I left that breakfast and he went to write my referee letter. And then he says, now you need to go find five others mm. and we will apply for this thing. Mm. So yeah, that's how it started for me. That year, that's when I decided I should do this thing. That, that was incredibly, I think, impactful. And, you know, I think so valuable to have had someone, you know, who pushed you to actually, you know, I think dream beyond what you could see yeah. uh, in the now. You yeah. Know, what you see around you. Um, dream beyond you know, the past of, you know, being, you know, maybe a couple of years before, you know, that was it for your, for your journey in, in medicine, right? Yeah. Um, but to actually push even more, to say, actually, you know what, um, I'm going to change this country. And I think that's incredibly yeah. And, you know, so, you know, would, would you say, you know, what was the impact of being in an environment like, you know, the University of Oxford, um, you know, over the past few years and, you know, a top medical institution, a top institution in general. Yeah. Um, you know, what's what's it been like to to have been in that environment? And would you say that your friendships um, that you have kept in life at large have been more intentional um, over time as well? Yeah, I, I've actually been very lucky that uh, the friends that I described that I made at, at, uh, earlier on at UCT, mm. we lived in a house for five years together. We still yeah. chat. And I think that's, that's what happens. I think at a certain stage in your life, especially when a lot of rough things happen to you, like being excluded and all of this, mm. you just realize who's really there for you, who actually cares. And, and then you see who doesn't. So it becomes much easier. Hardships makes it easier to see who really belongs in your life and who wants to be there. 
And so I literally wrote down the names on a list and it seems to have been a really good list because, yeah, it's mm-hmm. super easy to keep up those friendships. The others have just fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to Oxford has also been the making of, I think, the, the man that I'm becoming. Yeah. One of the difficult things about coming to Oxford was again, entering a space where I think as a black person, you are a minority. Mm. And sometimes like it's, it's a vicious experience. Yeah. You know, like you, I walked through the wrong door this one time and I was told like, you're not gentry. You can't pass through that door. And, I just, and you know, like now looking back at it, that's not normal, right? That's actually, that's not what Oxford is about. What yeah. was happening in that experience was something that is not right. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it's since been rectified. So mm. it's not tradition. Some things we just think it's tradition, but actually there's something else that's going on. Yeah. Um, being a Rhodes Scholar enabled me to be part of like a lifelong community of fellowship. It really is that. So you meet people from around the world who may have been Rhodes Scholars from 50 years ago, and they actually just care about your development. Yeah. Uh, and the challenge is like the concept of trying to stand up for the world. So that's yeah. been an amazing opportunity. Uh, I managed to join a really group, cool group of friends, and we started a, a technology incubator uh, that would help people to build startups. We yeah. managed to organize trips to go to San Francisco, and we went to the biggest venture capital firms in the world. So yeah. Kleiner Perkins, uh, we went to Sequoia. Uh, for those of you who are VC enthusiasts, these names are almost like, you know, like gold-plated. Um, and, you know, we met these guys. We were there for hours pitching ideas. And now mm. when I look back at it, I'm just like, wow, we went to SoftBank. Yeah. Or how they operate. Yeah. It's a great experience. But but on a personal front, I think things that I want to be better at as a person uh, came to the fore. So I think particularly growing up in, in South Africa, sometimes we develop a sense of like toxic masculinity that sort yeah. of crowds out space for either other uh, young men who don't like conform to that or also, you know, for the most part, women. Yeah. And in Oxford, I am regularly, so, someone will place a mirror in front of me that regularly causes me to question my behavior and the things that I do. Like yeah. the stuff that happens, like let's say in South African social settings at clubs that people mm. do or say, that's just not acceptable outside South Africa. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's been a valuable experience to learn that, especially quite early on in my road scholarship. And, and, and more so now, I think being able to have an educational opportunity that allows you to raise significant funds. So I think for my PhD, I must have raised something in the order of what's now 750,000 Rand yeah. that I could spend in South Africa, empowering other people in the research community to do collaborative work. So, so it enables you to be, to, to gather resources and actually cause change that would have been actually much more difficult to do had you stayed. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, I think this, this whole idea of being a global citizen, and I'm not saying copping out from belonging to a place, but it gives you a global network of people who care about making the world a better place. Yeah. And together you can collaborate on getting a lot of resources together to solve really complex problems that you couldn't do on your own. Yeah, yeah, that's really profound. And and you know, so so bringing it back home, right? Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about you know building a tech-enabled South Africa, 
Um, you know, I think firstly, let's let's talk about the challenges that we have to overcome. And I, I think if I preface this a little bit, you know, I think COVID nineteen has highlighted. I don't think it's it's brought about, you know, um, the problems. I, I think it's actually highlighted a lot of the the problems we have in the tech enabled space. Um, you know, in South Africa in particular, I think, you yeah. know, as we start to, to consider things like, you know, schools with remote yeah. learning, some schools can seamlessly just adapt and say, kids stay at home and you'll yeah. remote learn, right? Yeah. Whereas other schools don't even have a computer at the school, yeah. right? Don't have running, clean running water, don't have, you know, soap, you know, they have, the school hasn't seen, you know, proper soaps in the actual bathrooms, for months, right? And that sort of, you know, the, the sort of difference between those two um, sort of worlds, if it, if it were, within one country, really, I think, emboldens us to to really start to think about this topic, which is, you know, building a tech-enabled South African economy, right? How do we, how do we transition with that? And you know, what do you think specifically? What do you think are the the challenges that we have to overcome? Um, to get to get there. Yeah, I think I think where South Africa is uh, is kind of like where China was in 1979. China mm-hmm. had a famous leader called Deng Xiaoping, and I, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, yeah. but um, you know, Deng Xiaoping, as well as the rest of the Communist Party of China, and I guess China as a nation, was at a decision where they could follow a path of traditional communism, right? And, and, and a way of doing things that would have allowed their growth to happen yeah. at, a, at, a, at a slow rate and maybe not include everyone, right? Like, and then on the other hand, they had this choice of saying, we have to open up to the world. Yeah. And in no way am I saying capitalism is the right mode of production to do it, but they had a number of paths to choose and they chose one that would drive a lot of growth with yeah. its own disadvantages. Yeah. But I think just like Tito Mboweni said two days ago, that South Africa is quoting the scripture when he said, you know, the wide gate or the narrow gate. You know, South Africa has some stark choices to make. Business mm-hmm. cannot continue as usual. You know, a 30% unemployment rate that might even end up being 38% by the end of the year, which in truth translates to youth unemployment rates of 70%. The first one, 70% of young people, like, doesn't matter if you have a degree or whatever unemployed is is a state that is going to end up in anarchy people cannot feed themselves people have no hope for the future that cannot be the status quo Mm. and what i would like to ask young south africans is and and not young south africans but really all south africans but in particular young south africans Mm. i don't think that and and i mean this in the best of ways Mm. i don't think that cyril ramaphosa um, whether it's Helen Zilla, whether it's Tito Mboweni, will mm. understand the kind of world that we need to create for ourselves. We mm. need to forge a brave, bold South African vision that gets everyone back to work, included in the economy. So when yeah. I hear Tito Mboweni, and you know, it, it's really difficult. He, 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 he told us on Thursday, right, that by the end of this year, South Africa's debt will be 82% of our GDP. Just take a moment to think about that, right? Like, 
you and I are going to be at a point where our country spends more on servicing its debts than actually building roads, hospitals, paying teachers, and so on very soon. This concept of a sovereign world, sorry, a sovereign debt crisis is having been being a, a Zimbabwean also, it's a reality. It's not just a construct. No, it's it, it of it happening. Once it and once it hits hard, it, it becomes it becomes disastrous. Yeah. Um, and it and it and it really you know we have to we have to absolutely you're quite right. We have to absolutely urgently right start yeah. to form the the economy of the future but now yeah right we and can't form the like? economy in 20 years time no yeah it yeah to be now it, yeah and, and 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 that's what i get to is that how does that economy look like that economy does not look like the one that's being described uh by our minister of finance who yeah. i respect usually as a farmer one day i wish to have a farm but you know <laughs> Oh, the whole thing, you know, like wine, peaches, stuff like that, you know, like just growing stuff. But that's a topic for another day. But the thing is, when our government announces that it's going to spend a hundred billion rand on infrastructure mm. projects, like mm. I, I admire that. That, but I, I think that's like almost like Keynesian economics, looking at like how to get out of the Great Depression. If yeah. the idea is to spend for growth, cool. But like. Our country does need infrastructure, but what I worry about is what we have in our minds. Is it bridges? Is it stadiums? Is it dams? You know, if you speak to young people and we stop and we say, do we really want more dams? No. Why don't we invest in solar farms? Why don't we think about wind energy, right? Things that are easy to scale up and good for the planet. Don't go and build nuclear power stations that we have to deal with in the not so distant future. My question is like, and I, and I, and I, and I want to cite people. I want to look at people like, uh, Melvin Lubega, you know, like the Harambe Entrepreneurship Society. I want to mm. look at like the young people in Cape Town who are working on startups. Dr. Will Mappam, who's transforming healthcare through his app called Vula. And I'm thinking to myself, if we can create the Amazon of South Africa or Africa, right? In our part of the world, then all you need is a driver's license, an honest uh, character, and you can get a job to deliver goods, right? That is infrastructure in the 21st century. We can talk about job security around those things, but I think we as particularly younger South Africans need to fight to create this bold new future. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I, I really, you know, love what you said there because I think, you know, we, it, it is almost as, I think there's, there's, there's a, there's a part to be said about, um, the intention, mm. right? So I think it's absolutely critical for us to have the, the right intentions of this new economy and yeah. for us to map it out. But somewhere where I think we, we, and I, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, our our country of of birth as Zimbabwe, for example, right? You might have the right intention, but the execution is not is not up to scratch, and the the delivery of of the intention is also not up to scratch. So we also have to get to that step as well. So yes, you know, we absolutely we need the right vision of the right economy of what we want, yeah. right? Yeah. But if 
if we're going to build schools, if we're going to build, you know, hospitals, as you, as you pointed out earlier, we better execute that properly, right? Not, not go 85% over budget, right? You know what I mean? It's, it's just this thing or, or, you know, declare insolvency somewhere in the project and then, you know, yeah. take your payday and walk away, right? Yeah. That, that for me is, there's almost a responsibility for the vision. Um, there's almost a responsibility to, to execute the vision based off of um, the fact that actually we have the right intention. We must have the right intention. But I think whatever we do, we absolutely have to execute it well. And we absolutely have to um, execute an economy, right, and build that economy for the future. But now, I absolutely think it, it is the right time. And I think, you know, as, as you sort of move into to, – to, to another topic we want to talk about in terms of our, our shared vision for for what South Africa is 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 to become. Yeah. At the moment, you know, with with COVID nineteen, I think South Africa has plenty yeah. of challenges. Um, you know, I think at the moment the the healthcare systems, as we know, are not. You know, it, it's not it's not a good, it's not in good shape in yeah. general. Um, the schools we can see now as we sort of try to return to school that they are yeah. not with that. Right. Um, how do you think we go forward? What 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 does South Africa look like? Right. And how can we play a part in that? I'll have you know, Tafa, I want you to know something. You should be proud to be an African in, in the continent that I think probably has the brightest future in the world. The yeah, thing but... is, having lived in so many different places, I mm. can tell you that like in the American entrepreneurial space, it's crowded, right? And quite frankly, people are not solving important problems. Hence, mm. George Floyd. Hence, coronavirus having 2 million cases. Mm. And that tells you health systems, education. It's not working. In Africa, look at our COVID response compared to the rest of the world, right? Yeah. It's not maybe as... Um, it, it's, it, it doesn't maybe like look like super high-tech, but actually... Yeah. It's about first principles and it's working. And what I want to bring to that is that if you are a young entrepreneur in South Africa, you are probably mm. at the best time. Things yeah. like COVID break the status quo. They create, if you imagine, it's like a, a roof that suddenly has holes in it and there's opportunities for lights to come in and see things that you couldn't see before. Mm. And this is what I'm talking about by that certain Certain, certain South Africans who have an opportunity to move the levers on the country are so yeah. focused on making big, bold changes when actually what we need is a sort of bunch of, um, how can I say, a small wave of micro changes that gains momentum to become a tsunami. So in a sense, maybe government has to just get out of the way of people. It mm -hmm. might be difficult to open a business, a legal business. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of the issue is access to capital. Uh, mm -hmm. About two years ago, South African CEOs announced the development of the South African uh, S small, sorry, S medium, medium enterprise fund. Yeah. That fund raised a billion rand. And I think Adrian Gore and Ketso Godan are instrumental figures in leading that. Mm -hmm. They then developed uh, venture capital vehicles that they're funding. So they gave some existing money to small funds. And, yes. then, they, and then they established a university technology fund between Stellenbosch and UCT. But can mm -hmm. you see the problem, Chief? So if you come up with a good idea from UWC 
Vitz, Pretoria, what's going to happen? And then, mm. and then you see that like formerly black uh, universities are not captured, so are, are not um, are not empowered with these funding vehicles for their innovations to mm. to, to make it to the rest of the world. So yeah. what I'm advocating for is that like don't rely on a government policy to come up with these things. We need to mobilize if it's crowdfunding or whatever, if it's put finding wealthy entrepreneurs who see our vision both in South Africa and outside, let's create funding vehicles. I'm going to tell you now, a billion rand is a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Young entrepreneurs in South Africa must be bold. Create yeah. ideas that reach the entire African continent. And I promise you, if you can reach the thousands, you can get access to much bigger capital in outside South Africa. And I'm happy to be part of that plan to help people, particularly in the healthcare sector, build continent-wide businesses, right, that break barriers and make the government sit up and say, wow, South Africans are doing it for themselves. Let's listen to what their vision is. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. And what, what kinds of people do you think we, we need, um, you know, to make South Africa a, a better place and, and to build that future that, that, that we so hope for? Tafa, I think I think we need people who have the personality of breaking things, but also making things mm. right in the same person. And also like this sense of like not following, following, following rules that keep, you know, things working well and and, and keeping trust and also keeping good governance. But people who don't respect conventional rules that do not make sense. And yeah. by that, I want to give you the personality of a runner. Tafa, have you ever been number one in a in a in, in a race? Even even for like a minute in the race, you look yeah. back and you were ahead. Beginning, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. What's the psychology of running number two versus running number one? Number two always has you know a target. You yeah. want to be number one. Yeah. And when you're number one, the scary thing is now you have to set the pace. You have to set the pace, and, and you don't know whether you are running quickly or not. Yeah, and you exactly, but you run towards a vision, right? You mm -hmm. see yourself crossing the finish line and the exhilaration of all that effort in winning. And at some point in the race, you decide it's probably easier for me to put in the effort now and win than to like get tired and concede and be second because you still have to run that race next week or next exactly. year and try and prove the same. So it's better to just put it all, all over the line. And I think as South Africans and as Africans, we have an opportunity to take control of our destiny. We have yeah. an opportunity to think about the vision of the kind of world where we are respected, active participants and world beaters. Mm. Healthcare, finance, agriculture, you name it. Mm. We forge that vision. We run the race. When we get to number one, we start now thinking about number one psychology. But until you get to number one, no mm. one believes you that you can be. I tell you this. I've run lots of races in my life. Yeah. The surprise that people have on their face when they're like, but that guy is now number one. No. But you have to believe in it from day one when you start the race. And the thing is, in our post-democratic race of South Africa, of trying to get to where we need to be, we are not yet the best, the yeah. best of what we can be. And I yeah. think we need to realign ourselves to the vision of what that is, 
If your own vision of like running a successful small enterprise, of being a great teacher, of being a great medical doctor, being a great uh, academic, you know, just make sure that institutions are working. But why we are all uh, behind that vision in our lives of building a better future, no one can hold us back. Well, we'll be unstoppable. We'll be absolutely unstoppable. And I think what you said is it's extremely powerful. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, another question that we had from, from the Q&A is, you know, so what types of people, you know, will we look to as, as major successes um, in the next 10 years? So, so what kinds of people, you know, today um, will we look at in 10 years time as major successes? I can even give you names if you want, but I don't know whether that's allowed. Um, <laughs> you know yeah. something? Um, the last three weeks have been very profound for me uh, watching George Floyd. I think last year watching Greta Thunberg with the climate change crisis protests and movement. And I can tell you, I have a firm belief that the leaders of tomorrow are our generation. I don't think cares about the, the, the things that made the status quo kind of work. It's quite striking. I'm not sure like the, the, the millennials and generation Z's, Obviously, there's a cultural and national flavor, right, in each yeah. geographic space. Care, care so much about things like money in the same way that I think maybe other generations do. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't think people want to suffer, but I also think people would rather have clean air than be billionaires with a scorched planet, right? And yeah. I, I genuinely think that there is a tsunami that's coming. Mm. around people's expectations of good governance, Mm. long-term thinking. Mm. But I also think having laws that um, create freedom around personal freedoms, like, for instance, sexuality, personal choices, educational choices, um, you know, even down to, like, transport, what you get, land ownership, all of these questions. But I think matched with that is a passion and resolve to finish the job. That's yeah. what Roads Must Fall looks like in South Africa. Yeah. That's what um, George Floyd looks like in America. And mm. you know what? That's what it looks like in many of the political and economic crises that are going around the world. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's people who are fed up and a lot of them young who have this different, more nuanced, more egalitarian vision of the world that is in such sharp odds with the current uh, class of decision makers. And it's unstoppable. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really, really powerful. And Najee, as we, as we draw to a close, and I think you you have shared some really incredible um, wisdom with us. And I think some, I think, you know, if anybody's listening to this, you better rewind and start and start from the from the top and start taking notes, right? Yeah. Because I think there's there's really been some some really educational and inspirational words, um, lessons and knowledge that you've shared. I've got two questions for you to finish off. Um, yeah. Both came from our Q&A. The first one is, you know, so, uh, you know, do you, you know, how, how, how do you, as a, okay, this, this is your actually answer second, so not, not first. Okay. The first question I want you to answer is, you know, as a dual citizen, right, do we have a responsibility to feed both our countries? So South African and Zimbabwean put together, do you have responsibility to feed both of our countries? 
And the second question is a, is a bit more, you know, pertaining to you as an individual, which is that, you know, how do you find the balance between your personal life um, and pursuing your ambitions? Okay. Okay. So the first question is actually a lot easier for me. Um, yeah. I am, I am, I am both South African and Zimbabwean, and 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 I and I and I would even say that like it's not in a dual citizen kind of way. It's more mm-hmm. like in a code switching kind of way. You know, yeah. like how you can move from one social setting. Like yeah. I love Zimbabwe. It's in my DNA. It's where I was born. I speak the language. I have so many relatives who are there. It is home for me. Like it is visceral. In mm-hmm. the same way that even though for South Africa it's an acquired thing, my mm-hmm. love for South Africa runs deep. It is visceral. It's evident mm-hmm. by the fact that in a pandemic, I made sure that I would spend some time at home with my family in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, as an African first, I think that I have a responsibility to give back to my continent. I yeah. think I'm uniquely positioned to understand the cultural dimensions of both Zimbabwean and South African life. And because of how much both countries, people in both countries have sacrificed in my own development, I owe it to them. Like, I, mm-hmm. I really do deeply feel that way. I love South Africa. I want to see it work. I was trained as a medical doctor in South Africa. I had mm-hmm. a wonderful education. I feel a moral obligation to give back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so and I think that's, that's, that's a really powerful response. Um, and one that I think is linked to your identity. Um, and so, you know, the second question in terms of, you know, how do yeah. you balance your, your personal life. Um, yeah. So you having a personal life yeah. and you actually put, pursuing your ambitions and, you know, being quite busy at that, I'm sure. I think, Tavazo, I think it's just a mess, man. Let's just be honest. It's a, it's a balanced mess. It looks like a salad. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think sometimes I'm way too busy with work and I'm way too focused on that. Mm-hmm. I see the long-term picture. I see where I'm going to land up and the good that I can do in the world alongside others. That's mm-hmm. what drives me. So I mm-hmm. do what needs to be done to get things done. It means waking mm-hmm. up at four, I'll do it. If it means not sleeping, I'll do it. But there yeah. comes a point where you have to ask yourself, if you give so much of yourself, but you can't restore your own cup, that's not going to help anyone, especially you. Yeah. So, so I think what's, what I'm very lucky with is I think I have a network of people around me who can probably tell me if I'm starting to do things that are too much. Yeah. And I have a wonderful partner who reminds me of, I think, some of the things that are more important than just trying to go for these big goals. So, yeah. you know, what? Like being a bit more present is something that I need to get better at. So sometimes you can make time to be at some place, but, but like mentally, yeah. you're not yeah. there. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I need to get good at. I think going forward is being present mm. in conversations, in people's lives. And, you know, this whole thing of like chasing your dreams, doing PhDs, um, trying to build major companies. It, 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 it is very, it can end up being a very selfish process, right? Because like you actually gain a lot from it. Yeah. You need to be present for other people's victories in your life. Yeah. 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 That's really powerful. And, you know, I, I I know we've come to a close and this has been a a, a jam packed session. I, I, 
I just want to thank you um, for for one coming onto the show and availing of your time. I, I know that you're you're a busy person. Two, um, for not just being on the show, but absolutely giving us pearls of wisdom. Um, but I also think as well, giving us something to think about in in many sort of different fields and cases. I think you know you you spoke a lot about you know how your journey right um in your journey you you managed to sort of immerse yourself in a culture and you, and you managed to, cultures rather and you managed to sort of listen and understand people i think there's so much power in that and you know as we sort of you know moved into your experience into uct um you know the power of 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 actually deciding that this is your dream and this is what this is what you want um as you sort of run through your life is i think really powerful and i think this is definitely, I think, to anybody listening or watching this, has you know given people a lot of inspiration and given people a lot of power um, to to propel themselves forward. So I just want to thank you so much yeah. uh, for coming onto the show. I I would love to have you back again um, in the in the future. This is this is a long term initiative. It's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Um, so we'd love to have you back again, but thank you for being a part of the community. Thank you for, for joining the conversation and thank you for impacting and educating and inspiring people's lives as well. Yeah. Tafadzwa, thank you very much for hosting me and to your listenership who, who are out there. You know, let's, let's fight for a better South Africa and let's do that starting today. Um, and you can hold me to account about my part in that. And I just, I just, I just really believe that the events of the last couple of weeks are a real turning point in the world, but also for South Africa. And yeah. thank you for giving me this platform. No, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure, Dr. Tinashe Chandoka. Thank you so much for joining the show. I hope that you uh, stay safe, you stay healthy. Yeah, yeah. Have a wonderful weekend further, even as a Man United fan. I hope this. Oh, <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and goodbye to your audience and goodbye to Fadzo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Well, thank you very much for tuning in and listening to the episode. I hope that you enjoyed that, that you impacted positively, and that you found substance and significance whilst listening to the show. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star rating. You can also check out and subscribe to my episodes in video format on the Impactful Conversations YouTube channel. Just head over to YouTube and search Impactful Conversations. Thank you to all of you who've listened and subscribed. It really does mean an incredible deal to me. But anyway, until the next episode, bye-bye, stay safe, stay healthy, and wash your hands.